0: Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I know what it's like to hear those three words. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. One day I said to my wife, Linda, that I hated the fact that I had cancer and she looked at me and said, no, sweetheart, we have cancer. This transformed the way I looked at cancer because every one of us is touched by it in some way. Patients and survivors, caregivers and medical professionals, and we all have a story to tell. On each episode, we share those stories to inform, inspire and provide hope to all of us who are affected by cancer to remind us that we are not alone. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 191 of the We Have Cancer podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And I have a guest this week, and it's not often, but every now and then I do get to have a buddy. Uh, as a guest on the show. And that is the case today. My good buddy, Tim McDonald, a local uh, friend of mine and fellow colon cancer warrior. Tim, thanks so much for joining us on the We Have Cancer podcast. Thank you
1: for having me. You were one of the first local people I connected with uh, after I was diagnosed. And so, just so glad we came in contact and get to meet at infusions every once in a while.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know. Yeah. Is is there something, uh, some saying? I think we may have even posted this on Facebook once, you know, uh, friends who have chemo together stay together or something (laughs) like that, where we've actually been, uh, you know, in the infusion center at the same time at the Moffitt Cancer Center down here in Tampa, Florida. Uh, But I want to jump right in. Not only, you know, do you and I have the colon cancer diagnosis in common we also both have liver involvement in terms of metastasis. Uh, I chose to go the chemo route, did some ablations, and uh, as our audience knows from uh, a recent episode, and have um, gone the route of the hepatic artery infusion pump, the HAI pump. You made a more dramatic decision, Tim, and that is to pursue liver transplant. What was behind that decision?
1: Well, I've been told since I was diagnosed that uh, surgery was not an option for me. Um, and I just refused to kind of believe that. But the more research I did, the more, you know, I read, the more webinars I was on. Big part of Colon Town. So looking in, you know, I remember it was last a year ago, not this February, a year ago, February, they did a whole thing on like in the, their, what they call liver lovers lane, um, which is people that have colon cancer that metastasize to their liver, all like these matches of treatments versus your condition, you know, what was good, what was a turnoff, you know, kind of taking the whole Valentine's day theme. And I remember going through all those options cause this was all still very new to me at the time. I was only like three months in and i just kept looking and because all my friends were suggesting things like you know y90 and you know hia and ablation and blah 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 and i'm like i was looking and i'm going through all this going none of these are for me you know and um because of you know my liver condition because of the number of of lesions that i had and everything else so i eventually found out that and started hearing about liver transplants. And I started doing some research and Betsy post to moderates that group and is a fantastic human being. Um, and so helpful.
0: She is, she, um, is.
1: she yeah. just, you know, messaged me and said, Hey, give me all your information. What type of genetic makeup you have this, let me get with Dr. Hernandez up at university of Rochester and see if He thinks that you'd be a candidate. And if so, I'll connect you guys. And so I had gotten on a um, gotten connected with him and started learning that liver transplants for metastasized cancer patients um, have a statistically and I don't believe all statistics, but I like using statistics to help me judge what I want to do statistically can give you uh, you a 10-year lifespan as opposed to a three- to five-year lifespan of just being on chemo. And um, I heard that and I was just like, well, I remember one of the first things I heard when I was diagnosed is that my first oncologist that I had was not going to give any timeframes. But when I followed back up with him after seeing another oncologist that did give me a timeframe, he said, I think it's unrealistic for you to live 10 years, but I think you'll live longer than the average. And so I just thought, you know, hey, why don't I try this if it's going to double, you know, my my odds of living that long. And as I've learned, um, if I do get a successful liver transplant, I not only will be no evidence of disease or NED as we call it, but I have a 25% chance of having no recurrence of the cancer. And I just looked at that as a huge opportunity and sign that this was the path I was supposed to take. So really, it was either going this path for me or looking at chemotherapy for life or getting on clinical trials, which is basically just a fancy name for chemotherapy that hasn't been approved by the FDA yet.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Right, right. We have visited this topic before with a mutual friend of ours um, going back uh, maybe a year a year or two, Carol Motika. And, uh, I know that you've talked to Carol, um, but getting, you know, going, getting back to your specific situation. Um, first off, I'd be remiss. Let me just jump right in for people who want information and we'll talk about the information that they need. They can go to your website, which is timsliver.com. So definitely check that out. Uh, this link as well as Uh, other ways that you can reach out to Tim for information will be included in the show notes for today's episode. What do people need to know uh, to determine if they or someone they know could possibly be a donor for you, Tim?
1: Yeah. Well, the first question I often get, which isn't a direct answer to your question is, isn't there a list you can get on or where are you on the list? And there is no list. Um, Almost all metastasized cancer patients that are getting a liver transplant, get it from a living donor. And what that means is that we don't qualify to get on a list because all cadaver livers coming from a deceased person um, go to somebody that has severe liver disease that's basically in the last stages of their life and they need a new liver to live. So you you get scored in that. And they're like, I'm at like a six or a seven, those people on that list for cadaver livers are 30 and above. So you can imagine like I would be waiting a long, long time and be in a lot worse condition and probably not be speaking to you right now (laughs) if, if I need, I I was scoring a 30. So that being said um, what they look for in a living donor is basically anybody that's the age of 18 to 60. um, I am an O positive Blood type, but that means any O blood type would work and certain strains of A blood. Doesn't matter negative or positive, just certain strains of it. Um, Height and weight matter. And the reason why that matters is because your liver regenerates itself and it regenerates itself to its original size. So, and I think Carol actually pointed this out, I think in a post, I think it was her, that she got a liver from somebody that was bigger than her, I think. And, and I might be mixing up who it was, but I remember reading this story from a, a recipient and the liver was bigger than that, you know, their body and they could actually feel it inside and know exactly where their liver was. And wow. so, so you need to make sure that it's somebody close in height. So I'm six one. So they say the criteria is like five ten to six, four. It's not hard and fast, but that's the general range. Um, you need to be in overall good physical and mental health and you can't have any signs of previous cancer you can't have diabetes you can't have kidney disease and you can't have heart disease and that's basically it um and the process of all this is um you call urm which is university of rochester uh medicine and you call up there there's a number on the site And you just say that you're calling for me and you give them my date of birth, which is on the site, and you just say that you're interested in being a donor. They'll ask you a couple questions, simply like height, weight, do you have any of these conditions, what's your blood type, blah, blah, blah. If you pass that, then they'll ask you to get screening. And screening is basically blood and tissue samples that are performed, and you can do that locally, and then they get the results up to URM. Um, If that goes well, then they ask you to go through a two-day screening period. Um, And that screening and the initial um, blood tests and everything is covered by URM. They cover the cost for that. So you can get it done locally or you can go up to URM and get it done there. The reason why they like to have it done there is, one, they're in control of the schedule and can get it done right away. And two, they know they have instant access to the results instead of waiting a day to three or four days, depending on the where you get it done and how long they take to release the records. So um, that's, that's stage one. And then I actually need to go through the same screening um, and I would go up to URM and go through all the screening up there, get all that taken care of. And once that takes place, if we're both looking like a match, even if we're not 100% approved and finalized, they will go ahead and start coordinating a surgery date which will probably be about a month out from when we were approved. Um, So let's just say, for instance, like July 15th, you call, you're approved on, let's say, August 15th. I need a month off, depending on your schedule, if you're the donor, and me being off a chemo for a month, we could realistically do it like September 15th. And all that cost is covered by my insurance for the actual transplant. The only thing that's not covered is the fact of um, the travel to get back and forth to URM and any work that you miss while you're having the surgery done and recovering.
0: I see. And what does that piece look like in terms of uh, surgery and recovery for the donor, Tim?
1: Well, for the donor, um, I have on the site like conservatively what they told me um (laughs) but i have heard from so many people that have gone through this process before that you know the person has been back home two weeks after the surgery um and they've been working within two to three weeks so i do know that there are weight restrictions because it's very similar to when i got my colon resection done and you know i couldn't lift 10 pounds for a month right and so it's similar in that like if you're a bricklayer if you work you know loading and unloading trucks or something like that you're probably not going to be realistically going back to work in two to three weeks but if you work at a computer answering phones something like that realistically you'd probably be back to work in two to three weeks
0: yeah i know when i had my own liver resection. uh back in 2013, it was, it was probably about three weeks before I was back to work. And again, I work an administrative, you know, desk type job too. So yeah. And I know for the uh, donor,
1: it's a lot less invasive than it is for the recipient me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so what is, you know, what does that process look like on your end? So you get a donor, um, you know, just curious, uh, you know, what is the procedure recovery and things look like for you, the recipient?
1: Yeah, well, I got to tell you, first off, the whole thing, this process of finding a donor, it is like a, a trust in faith, unlike anything else I've experienced in life, because you don't get notified by the hospital of who called, how many people called, anything like that. And a lot of that has to do with Privacy Act, you know, where they can't reveal any information. So I've known two people who have called out of three months of going through this. Now, I know many others have called and not made it too far, but I've known two people who have called because they've told me that they've called. They've told me exactly what the hospital has been telling them. Everybody else is just, it's like blind faith. I have no idea. I can only talk to the hospital and say, are calls still coming in? Are you getting good activity? And they'll let me know, yes, no. And if not, then I do try something different and ramp up a whole new approach of how I outreach people and who I talk to and where I'm sharing the message and how I'm getting the message out. So that whole process is like, a, a you know, just leaping off a cliff without a parachute and just hoping you land safely, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, would you be notified as soon as there is a match?
1: They would let me know the hospital after that person went through the two-day screening. They would say, we have somebody that we're bringing in for a two-day screening. Um, We want you to come up here and get screened.
0: So that means at this point that has not happened yet. That has not
1: happened yet. Right. Got it. Got it. Um, now, Now, the process for me, once I get the transplant, is once that happens and I get notified that I need to go up for the screening, And then I get notified of when the surgery date would be is I would then stop chemo and be off of chemo for a month, which is pretty typical for any type of surgery. And, um, I would probably be in the hospital for two to three weeks, I believe. And I would have to stay in the Rochester area around the hospital for one to two months. And I've even heard people suggest three months. So, I would basically be living up there for at least two months, I'd imagine. And then once I got cleared from them to come home, I could come home. um, And I just know this from talking with other people who've been through it too. I mean, you're on anti-rejection medication for basically the rest of your life, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was something I looked into briefly. And for me... Uh, I should say for us, for my wife, Linda and I, it just felt like too big of an ask. And, and, and let me just jump in here. I hate using the word ask as a noun, but it fits here. But I just, you know, emotionally, I, I couldn't wrap my head around asking people to do that for me.
1: Well, I have to.
0: Was, how did you process that?
1: I have to tell you, Lee, it, I have not asked a single person if they would donate for me. Um, I don't believe that. I believe in putting general ask out there and I believe in asking other people to share my message so that they're asking and letting people know in their own words what it means, but for me personally, I feel that if I were to ask somebody directly, like if I were to go to you, let's say you were my friend and I knew you didn't have cancer and you were a good candidate, I would feel even if I knew out of the goodness of your heart that you would do this for me. By me asking, I would put an unspoken pressure on you to say yes. And I do not want to do that to anybody. And so I do not ask anybody personally if they will be my donor. I just share the information and let them make the decision. And it's been very difficult to even do that. But I'm learning that, you know, sometimes in life, Especially when it's a matter of your life, Um, you know, you don't get a less if you ask. And I've been, I remember on my donor call in March of this year when we had my family and friends on with URM about what the process was going to be like and ideas of how you could get the word out, that I told the nurse and I told everybody on there that I had a, a, a feeling in my gut that the donor was going to be somebody that I didn't know. And I still believe that to this day.
0: Interesting. So perhaps I looked at this through the wrong lens. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'm I'm going to go back and revisit it, but... Uh, You gave me a a whole new way of looking at it, and I I appreciate that.
1: Well, I was going to say, you know, one of the things that I've gone through with this and understanding that it's all on the patient to be able to find the donor is once I get the transplant, my goal is to make sure any other metastasized cancer patient that needs a liver transplant isn't doing this alone. I'm going to create a community. I'm going to create a database. And I'm gonna bring people together that are interested in being living donors for livers and people that need living donors that are metastasized cancer patients. And I'm gonna work with, I think there's only 14 hospitals or medical centers in the US that actually perform this this surgery right now. And I'm gonna work with all 14 of them to make sure that any patients they have going through this know that they can turn to us in this community to help them find a donor.
0: I am not in the least bit surprised hearing you share this when i see tim online the quality and quantity especially the quality of emotional support that you offer the online cancer community while going through your own you know cancer experience where where does that come from for you
1: i don't you know i i've just had it since i was a kid you know i mean i always i remembering Middle school, I think, was the first, you know, remembrance I have of, you know, there was a, you know, a fundraiser or something and, you know, for a nonprofit. And I just wanted to help and do what I could. I mean, I probably raised like, you know, five dollars or something like that. (laughs) I mean, you know, when you're in seventh grade or whatever, that's, you know, that's something right. You're making an impact. Sure. And I think as I've got older, I've just kind of seen. Well, first of all, I know throughout my career, because I've had a very storied career, it hasn't been linear at all. It's been very up and down and changing industries, changing job professions, everything else, and not always related. But the people that have helped me every time I've made a shift or a pivot have been there and supported me. And I vowed that I would never forget that. And I'd always remember that I would be there for somebody else that needed me. And I think that's, I mean, it started as a a youngster, but it really solidified itself, I think, as I got into the workforce. And I started having so many people that were so good to me and helping me and giving me advice beyond work. And, you know, it was just like, they're there for you. And, you know, I see so many people today and, you know, I just saw a shirt that was going around at a conference not too long ago that said something like, if you want to pick my brain, here's my Venmo or something like that. And I get it. I get it. I'm, saying, I'm not yeah, saying there's anything, sure. not anything wrong with that. But what I think they're failing to recognize is that they once were the people needing to pick somebody's brain and they need to remember that there's other people out there now that need to pick their brain. It's, it's
0: the pay it forward mentality right? Yeah.
1: And I don't and, even, I don't keep score. So I don't call it pay it forward. I just stay not. doing good. You know, I mean, you just do the right, right thing and do something that you feel is helpful for somebody else. And if you do that, you feel good. They feel good. I mean, it's a win win. It Nobody loses here.
0: hundred <laughs> percent that, you know, that was a, a promise I made myself when I was first diagnosed is all right. One of the things that I'm going to commit to do is, you know, Make others feel good, so and I know you and I see it together when we are you know at the infusion center uh they fight over you and i <laughs> <laughs> who which nurse gets to have you or me right and and you know we we laugh about it, but i i, I believe it's because we make them feel special, right, and um well, because and they are they, well, no doubt they <laughs> are. no. My, They are the angels here on earth, no doubt about it, right? Um, But like I said, by default, by making others feel good, we feel good. And when I referenced, you know, seeing your uh, consistent messages of support, mostly what I'm referring to, and we've talked about it uh, uh, many times here on the show, is the Man Up to Cancer uh, Facebook group. What has that group meant to you?
1: Well, it is the first group I joined. I think I joined in December and I was diagnosed the very end of November of 2020. So it was very fresh to me. Um, it was the first group I joined. And I think it's because a friend of a friend of mine, well, a friend of mine connected me. I think it was with Joe Bullock. And Joe invited me to join Man Up to Cancer. And I did. And you know, at first I'm kind of like, you know, I've never been a big supporter of like, you know, men's groups or women's groups or you know, I'm just a I'm supporter of everything, but I think we should all just be together and like have a human group, right? And so I kind of came into it with like this, you know, let's check it out and see. And I quickly learned that it was so needed because even though I'm at a place where I feel comfortable sharing you know publicly there's so many men that aren't and most other cancer groups that i've seen by experience and also by reading others um i think trevor talks about this quite a bit is they're all you know even though they're open to everybody they're dominated with women and men and women i think are wired differently and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a beautiful thing in life. <laughs> um, but I think that for the most thank part, thank God, Matt, very much <laughs> reserved where we very much keep it in. And what I saw in this group was a place where you could let it out. It didn't matter if you were venting. It didn't matter if you were laughing, if you were crying, if you're just looking for hope. I mean, you could share whatever you wanted in there and never, I still have not seen it to this day where anybody in that group puts you down for for what you think or how you feel. Unless if it's pineapple and pizza. But um
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's an inside joke, <laughs> <laughs>
1: but but that's like I think what is missing for so many men. And I think it's a it's just such a it's such a community of people that you know have come together and the bi-monthly Zoom meetings that we have. And I'm not on a lot of them because that gets kind of late for me. I'm kind of exhausted by that time. But it's it's just like, I mean, the, the friendships and the camaraderie and the support. And I mean, I think the most important thing to me is knowing that, you know, once we win our battles with cancer and, and we're no longer here, that that group will carry our name on their banner. And they literally do that. They write your name on the banner And I mean, there's people in that group that have, I mean, the more you contribute, the more you get. And the people who contributed to that group before they left us are the ones that are still talked about today and actively part of the conversation. And to me, that just means so much that, you know, once we're not here, that there's going to be more people other than just your immediate family and friends that remember you and the impact that you had on them.
0: Sure. Sure. And let's not forget those that um, you know. Unfortunately, there's not enough of them. But those that find their way to permanent, no evidence of disease, uh, still many of them want to be, you know, have their roots planted in that group too. Well,
1: and that that brings up. I mean, I haven't been there, obviously, but
0: that I'm trying. You're trying.
1: (laughs) um, You know, thoughts and emotions and feelings of what it means. I mean, you, you know, part of you is resentful, right? I mean, this is what I've heard because you're now no evidence of disease and there's all these other people still going through it. And and then there's the other side of what if it comes back, you know, and it's, sure. it, I mean, it's, it's, they're all real issues. And that's what I love about the group. It's not focused on one disease, one aspect of it. It just, if you're a man, you're going through it, you're caring for somebody, you know, you're a family member, just, you Know just come and and share and, and learn and support,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And this whole you know, dealing with no evidence of disease, uh, in the last episode, uh, pretty big part of my conversation with Michael, really. Uh, and uh, he says, I shared, you know, he's been my inspiration for pursuing the HII pump, but uh, yeah, they you know there's other issues to to navigate, uh, post-cancer too. And the group doesn't care, right? We're all are welcome. All are welcome. Well, Tim, this has been great. Um, uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share your story. And, uh, I certainly, uh, I hope and pray that by sharing your story, we expedite the process of finding that match, uh, you know, for you. And, uh, I know you're going to uh, continue to be putting the word out so again it's timsliver.com if our listeners go to the we go to com, or wherever you listen to your podcast spotify apple Podcasts, etc if you just chat tap on the icon for the show notes we'll have the link to tim's site as well as uh wherever uh else you can find him on social media And uh, I'll speak for him in advance. Anything that you can do to help spread uh, Tim's message is greatly appreciated.
1: Thank you so much, Lee. I really appreciate it. And for you listening, if you are a potential candidate, if you know of somebody, and if you don't meet the requirements, like Lee said, if you just share the message, I only say it takes one person, but it takes a community to find that one person. So thank you for trying to help make that happen.
0: It's been my pleasure. Be well, my friend.